Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning, I invite you to take your copies of God's Word. It's a joy to be back with you looking at Scripture together. And this morning, we're starting a a new series in the book of Ephesians. Many of you know that Ephesians is one of Paul's letters to the new churches in the New Testament. It comes right after Galatians and right before Philippians. And maybe many of you are like me. I often have struggled to keep the order of those middle letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and straight. And I was given the mnemonic, go eat popcorn, to help me remember those. I like that one, although I've, I've, I was told after the first service uh, that you could also use General Electric Power Company. And George eats pork and something. I don't remember what the last C was. So there's a lot of them out there, but uh, it comes right after Galatians and before Philippians. And Ephesians is such a glorious book, whereas Romans perhaps could be considered Paul's greatest logical exposition of the gospel. Ephesians declares the truths of Christ in beauty and grandeur. John McKay, a former president of Princeton Seminary, wrote that in Ephesians we find truth that sings, doctrine set to music. Others have called Ephesians the Grand Canyon of Scripture, breathtaking in its beauty and inexhaustible to the one seeking to plumb its depths. I look forward to studying this book, and as I was praying about and and planning where we should be in God's Word in the coming year, Ephesians stood out to me for three reasons. First of all, Ephesians calls our minds again and again to see the glories of Christ and the salvation we have by grace through Him, the blessings that God has poured out on us through our Savior, while also calling us to live worthy of that calling. You know, it's so easy for us to start to focus on ourselves and to focus on the things happening around us and to get our eyes pulled onto this world and what's happening and off of Him. Forty years ago or so, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones introduced his sermons on Ephesians, which fill six volumes. I won't take that long to go through Ephesians, but he introduced it with this comment. He said, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so interested in ourselves. Having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and spend our time in shallows and in miseries. And Lloyd-Jones says, Ephesians addresses that problem, constantly drawing our eyes off ourselves and setting them back on all that we have in Christ to the praise of his glory. So that was the first thing in my mind. Second, we all know that we're coming off a year that has challenged the unity of God's people. We find ourselves with different opinions on masks or different political persuasions or perhaps different perspectives on racial or or ethnic issues. But we find in Ephesians, Paul emphasizing again and again our shared union in Christ that reconciles us and unites us to each other. And Ephesians is going to guide us, not with sentimental calls to just get along or stop being so dogmatic about things, 
but with solid theology rooted in our union with Christ towards a self-sacrificing fellowship together as a church. And then finally, Ephesians closes with the clear reminder that as God's people, we are daily involved in a spiritual battle. When it comes to those who have entrusted our hearts and lives to Jesus, there is no spiritual ceasefire. Satan seeks daily to shame the name of Christ and to keep people mired in the pleasures and anxieties and ideas of this world and to attack the church of Christ. But we are equipped with all the strength and the resources of the God of the universe if we are united to Christ and he is living in us. And that reality will shape both our understanding of suffering and trials as well as ground our hope and our peace for each day. So as I thought through these things, it's part of why I was so eager to look at Ephesians together. And as you're turning to Ephesians in your Bible, let me give a quick word by way of background and context. Whenever we start a, looking at a letter of Paul's, we want to know, well, what was going on in the church there? What was some of the background and context for the letter? And while we can certainly say that Ephesus was a, a major port city in the Roman Empire on the coast of Turkey or Asia Minor, and it was a significant cultural center with a, a temple and a library and, and many other things. It was the heart of the worship of the goddess of Diana. We know these things about Ephesus, but the book of Ephesians is rather unique in that it doesn't give us a lot of details about the people in the church or the specific issues that were going on. In fact, we have very little information at all about the circumstances of this letter. Even though Paul spent a full two years there on his third missionary journey, this letter mentions not a single person by name other than Tychicus who carried the letter to these churches. It doesn't mention any unique questions or situations. Uh, It certainly talks about being a church of Jew and Gentile, which many of the churches faced, but there's not uh, much specific detail. This is a book that is doctrinal and gives us the truths of the gospel that would apply to any church. There's also an interesting uh, uniqueness to the letter of Ephesians that costs, or causes some doubt, and that is the fact that in verse 1, the phrase, in Ephesus, to describe the recipients of this letter, is actually missing from the oldest manuscripts we have of this letter. And so between the lack of personal greetings and, and the fact that some manuscripts don't have in Ephesus, some scholars wonder if it was written to Ephesus at all. But uh, the fact is, many manuscripts do include in Ephesus, and this letter was clearly associated with the church in Ephesus from very early in church history. And so while we can't know for sure, many scholars believe the most likely scenario is that this letter was written to a group of churches centered in and around Ephesus uh, that, uh, that addressed and was, was supposed to be passed around from church to church. But let's look at this letter specifically, and this morning I just want to begin with an introduction to the letter. So I want to read just the first two verses together as we look at God's Word. Would you read with me from Ephesians chapter 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us without guidance, but for giving us your inspired word through the hand of Paul here to challenge our hearts and encourage us and draw you to it, uh, draw us to yourself. 
We pray that you would do that this morning for Christ's sake. Amen. You know, whenever we're, we're writing a letter to someone, there are typical formalities that dictate how we typically start a letter. When I was growing up, we often would write at least one letter a week to a, to a family member or someone else, and the formalities were the easy part. I could always get dear grandma down. The question was, what do I say after that? But sometimes even the formalities tell us something significant. That's particularly true with, with emails today. Maybe you've gotten an email where all you have to do is read the subject line and you're already excited or maybe your heart has already sunk without having read any part of the email. As I was reflecting on my time as youth pastor, I was also reflecting on the fact that sometimes all you have to do is look at the email address a person has chosen for themselves and you learn a lot. I got emails from, you know, emails like pizzaandsoda at gmail.com. I've learned something about that student. You know, or chesschamp2006 at gmail.com. It tells me something. And Paul's greetings are a bit like that. They're never just formalities. And that's the main thing that I want us to see this morning from God's Word. That even in the greeting, Paul is not content merely to greet the Ephesians. He always uses the opening lines of his letters, and it's true here, to remind us of core truths about the gospel. And in these two verses, we learn something about who Paul is, who God is, who we are, and what the gospel is. And I just want to look at those four things this morning. Let's start with Paul. Right off, we learn something about Paul. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, there's certainly many things Paul could have included if he wanted to introduce himself to the people in Ephesus, things he could have said about himself. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a missionary to the Gentiles. If tradition is accurate, he could have said short and balding to describe himself. But when it comes to describing who he is, there is only one essential truth that matters And that is his calling from and relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus. Now the word apostle literally means someone who is sent. Someone who is sent on behalf of another. The New Testament uses the word apostle sometimes in a more generic sense, referring to anyone who goes with the message of the gospel. But most often, apostle is used in its more technical or specific sense, to refer to the 12 apostles and the few others who are uniquely set apart by their relationship with Jesus and given a specific commissioning from him to preach his word to his people on his behalf. By announcing he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul establishes his authority as well as his subject matter. Because if he's an apostle of Jesus, his word should be received as if Jesus himself were speaking. This would be true today of an ambassador who would be sent on behalf of one government to another. And that ambassador shows up. The people listening to them don't say, well, that's fine that you said that, but I need to hear from the president himself to know what you know, the United States really thinks. No, the, the ambassador is authorized to carry the words of the government and the message of the government to those he's sent to. And so when we come here to the book of Ephesians and we read that Paul is sent as an apostle of Jesus Christ. We learn that these words are not written to express Paul's opinions, but rather they are the words of God given to us through the hand of his emissary Paul, given to declare the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. 
I think by identifying himself first and foremost as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul also gives us an example. For when people get to know us, the thing that we should hope would be more evident than anything else is not what sports team we root for or what career we had throughout our our life or, or what lifestyle or dietary trend we subscribe to. No, we would hope that people would learn about us more than anything else, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. That is the core of who we are and the foundational essence of our identity. That's who Paul is. Well, of course, if one were to ask, okay, Paul, well, it's great that you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, but how does one become an apostle? You know, is there a a recruiting station that you can go and find out about the benefits of apostleship and maybe sign up if you uh, have the right qualities? Or did Paul take a skills and interest survey from his guidance counselor and get matched with apostleship as a potential career? Of course not. There's only one way to become entrusted with divine revelation and to be commissioned to represent Jesus. And that's by the will of God who would call you and commission you. And here I think we can see something very important about who God is from this opening passage. And it can be summarized this way, that God, the omnipotent king of the universe, is sovereignly working in every detail of our lives and all the grand movements of nations to call people to himself and to build his church. We see it in Paul's own life. Because think about what we know about Paul's own conversion to Christ. Paul knows that he would never be an apostle of Jesus if it weren't for the will of God. He was on a mission to destroy the church. The person he hated more than anyone else was Jesus and anyone who followed Jesus. Paul wasn't a good candidate for apostleship, but God had chosen him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so by God's will, Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and changed his heart and brought him to repentance over his sin and brought him to faith in Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. And so Paul didn't have to think twice about declaring that his salvation and his privilege of being an apostle was due only to the will of God, not to anything in his own goodness or his own choice. But I wonder if we can press the issue here because we're coming to a a letter to the church in Ephesus and ask not only, okay, Paul was an apostle by the will of God, but why is there even a church in Ephesus? Why is there a church for Paul to write to? And here again, I think we can say only because of the sovereign work and will of God. And I want to take a little bit of a detour here. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Acts chapters 18 and 19. Because in these two chapters, we come to find out how there is even a church in Ephesus in the first place. And here we'll get to see how it is that the will of God is so clearly at work, even in bringing about a church for Paul to write to. So if you're back in Acts chapter 18, the story of The church in Ephesus begins right away with Paul coming to the town of Corinth at the beginning of Acts 18. Paul comes to Corinth, and the first thing we find out right in verse 2 is that Paul meets a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Now, the only reason that Aquila and Priscilla are in Corinth is because the Roman emperor Claudius had adopted a national policy where he expelled Jewish people from Rome. 
And so forced to flee their homes in Rome, Aquila and Priscilla set out and happened to decide to come to Corinth. And coming there, we learn then in verse 3 that they happened to be tent makers, which is the exact same trade as Paul. And so Paul, arriving in Corinth, connects with these fellow tent makers and stays with them, and as we find out, stays with them for a full 18 months as he's there in Corinth. And so here are Aquila and Priscilla, having been kicked out of Rome and deciding to move to Corinth, and they connect with Paul and they stay with him, and so are equipped for ministry by staying with Paul for 18 months. Well, if you look further down in chapter 18, you'll find out in verses 18 and and 19 that Paul, after 18 months, took leave of Corinth and set sail and ended up in Ephesus. And we find out that he decided to take Aquila and Priscilla with him. So here he is, he takes Aquila and Priscilla to Ephesus, and Paul needs to get back to Antioch. He's on a mission to get back to Antioch. So he only stays in Ephesus for a couple of days, but what does he do? He leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus to continue the work of planting a church and preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And it turns out, just so happens, that it was really important that there would be a couple who was trained under Paul and equipped for ministry. Because if you look down to verses 24 and 25, a man named Apollos is going to show up in Ephesus. And Apollos is an effective preacher and servant of the Lord who is going to lead many to Christ, but his understanding of Jesus was incomplete. It said he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't know the full truths of Christ and the gospel. But it just so happens Aquila and Priscilla are there. And so Aquila and Priscilla pull Apollos aside and they teach him and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And then it says that Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews and shows from the scriptures that Christ is the Messiah. His ministry carries on. We can continue on to chapter 19. In chapter 19, Paul goes on to start his third missionary journey, and he comes back to Ephesus. And this time, he stays there for two years. And as is Paul's pattern, he started by preaching the gospel in the synagogue. You see this in verse 8. And for several months, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. But, and this might appear to be a hindrance to the gospel, he was rejected in the synagogue. They responded with unbelief and spoke evil of the way. So Paul leaves the synagogue and goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, he reasons in the hall of Tyrannus where, as it happens, both Jew and Greek come together to hear the gospel with the result, as verse 10 of chapter 19 says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you see the finger of God in all of these details? We can say that Paul became an apostle unexpectedly by the will of God. Then he went to Corinth and ran into Aquila and Priscilla, who by the will of God had been kicked out of Rome and decided to come to Corinth. So that by the will of God, they spent 18 months with their fellow tent maker and were equipped to lead a church so that by the will of God, they could go with Ephesus. And when Paul left quickly, they could stay there to lead the church. And by the will of God, could be there to correct and equip Apollos for greater ministry for the gospel. 
And when Paul returned, by the will of God, he was rejected from the synagogue so that he could declare the gospel so that all the Jews and all the Greeks in that region of Asia might hear the gospel and the church might grow. Do you see how national policies and individual decisions are worked out by the finger of God for the purpose of building his church? And as we come to this letter this morning, we should be encouraged Because the same God who is at work in Acts 18 and 19, who worked all these details to enable a church to exist in Ephesus so that a letter could be written to them, that same God is still at work. He's still at work in individual lives. He's still at work in small details. He's still at work in national events and policies. And he still has the same goal, to build his church by bringing many to know the name of Jesus. And he will not fail. This is what we learn about God and his will at work in his people. Some of you have likely experienced this in your own lives. Unexpected, unanticipated ways in which the Lord works to bring you and others to know Christ. And if God is still at work doing this same thing, then our call should be to pray that God might use us and the details of our lives to share the gospel and equip us to proclaim Christ so that more and more people might continue to hear him and know his salvation. This is what we learn about Paul. This is what we learn about God. Let's turn now back to Ephesians and see what Paul has to say about us, about believers in Jesus. We see this at the end of verse 1. As you're looking there, as you're flipping back, many of you have probably been to retreats or maybe team building events or or maybe a a business conference, and you have experience with that beloved category events known as icebreakers, everyone's favorite awkward moment when you're forced to get to know people you don't really know. And I remember I was reflecting a few years ago, I was getting to know a few of our rising youth group students, it was in May at the end of their sixth grade year and looking to to get to know them. And and we played an icebreaker game where each person was supposed to choose three words that would describe themselves. And they were supposed to choose one word that started with each initial. So, you know, if I'm Christopher Andrew Walker, I'd get a C word, an A word, and a W word that would describe who I am. And the impact of that event was such that I don't remember what anyone said and I don't remember what I said. But Hopefully it was at least an avenue to get to know some folks, to choose these three words to identify themselves. But here in Ephesians 1.1, Paul describes the Ephesians with three terms, with three words that in some ways could be a complete theology of what it means to be a Christian. First, the Ephesians are referred to as saints. Now the word saint is a word that just means a holy one. And it doesn't refer to someone who is particularly and notably godly. It refers to anyone who is set apart by God and devoted to him. It includes anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. Because anyone who trusts Christ as his Savior is no longer a citizen of this world. Is no longer left to ourselves to decide who we want to be. No, we have been set apart and devoted to the service of the God who has cleansed us and taken away our sins and given us eternal life with him. In Christ, we've been recreated and repurposed, no longer living for ourselves, but living for the glory of God, set apart and devoted for him. That's what it means to be a saint, 
to be devoted to him. That describes those whom God has set apart for himself. And it's a calling for us to live worthy, to live according to the work that God has done us, done in us, in setting us apart and devoting us to him and his glory. Then the Ephesians are called faithful. And it's interesting that the word faithful, this adjective is used here. It, it doesn't just mean those who have faith in Christ, although it does mean that. It's an adjective that has ongoing active implications. In other words, to describe the Ephesians as, who, as those who are faithful here brings in both the initial act of faith that united them to Christ and the fact that they are people who continue to exercise faith in Jesus, who continue to put their faith and trust in him. The word reminds us that faith is not just something we do at some point in history, and once we declare that we have faith in Jesus, we've done what we needed to do, we're a Christian and and we move on our way. Faith, those who are faithful, is an ongoing active decision to trust in and rest on Christ alone as our Savior day after day. Those who are faithful continue to put their faith in Jesus. They are faithful. So they're saints who have put their faith in Christ and continue to do so. Finally, Paul says that these faithful saints are in Christ. And this phrase, in Christ, and I'm fully aware I'm about to make a dramatic statement, may be the most important phrase in the New Testament. Because this phrase, in Christ, captures the essence of, of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, if you think over what you know of Paul's letters, you may realize that Paul never refers to those who believe in Jesus as Christians. It's not a term he uses. How does Paul refer to those who believe in Christ? Well, sometimes he uses the word saint, as we've just seen, but most often it's those who are in Christ. And in Christ is the source of all our blessings and who we are. We're going to see this phrase over and over again in the first two chapters of Ephesians. But as a brief definition, to be in Christ refers to our relationship with Jesus in which we are personally joined to him because he, by his own spirit, comes to live in us and unite us to himself. His spirit is in him and in us, uniting us to him as he dwells in us and with us. You might think of images like the branch that is in a vine or your arm that is in your body that the New Testament also uses to describe this relationship. And what the New Testament is describing is this relationship in which because we are in Jesus, what happens to him happens to us. If he dies, we are considered to have died. If he lives in resurrection life, we have the hope of living in resurrection life. If he is declared righteous and accepted in the presence of God, we can be declared righteous and accepted in the presence of God because we are in him. That is what this phrase is getting at. It reminds us that Christianity is not a religion of doing good things so that God will favor us, nor is Christianity a religion of knowing things about God or about the Bible. Christianity is about us putting our faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can pay the penalty of my sin and forgive me and reconcile me to God and give me life. And when we put our faith in him, he unites us 
to, our, to himself. He doesn't stand far off and say, okay, you put your faith in me, you can go and go to heaven. No, he gives us his spirit, uniting us to himself, remaking us and giving us his own life as the source of all our blessings and our hope. So I want you to tuck this phrase, in Christ, in the back of your mind. But we're, because we're going to see it about a dozen times in the next chapter and a half as the source and the root of all of our blessings in Christ. So Paul is an apostle of Christ. God is the one sovereignly exercising his will on behalf of his church. Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus, are saints who are exercising faith and who are in Christ. As we come to a close this morning, just notice briefly verse 2. Verse 2 is probably the most formulaic verse, if you will, in Paul's letters. Grace and peace are traditional words of greeting that Greeks and Jews might use. But Paul, once again, is never content with merely giving a greeting. And so he doesn't just say grace and peace to you, which might be a formal greeting, but he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because grace and peace are not a mere greeting. They're not something, they're not nice qualities we can just wish on others. Grace and peace in their essence are things that we receive from God through Jesus Christ. Salvation comes only by the undeserved kindness of God to sinners. And peace, a rest from fear, a security in the face of anxiety or threat, a reconciliation instead of hostility, all comes about only from God's salvation and God's presence with us through Christ. So grace and peace are no mere greeting. They are a summary of the gospel and they are ours from God the Father through Jesus Christ. What a great reminder and what a blessing. I think the table that we're about to come to this morning is a physical picture of this very grace and peace. The bread and the cup that we are about to partake of are signs and seals of Jesus' body and blood that are given to us. They are given to us by God's unexpected and undeserved grace. And they reconcile us to God, or they symbolize and seal that which brings us to God, giving us peace with Him and through Him. And so here we have from Paul a reminder of who He is, of who God is, of who we are if we are in Christ and a summary of the gospel, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the reminder of the gospel, for the reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us in shedding his blood and rising again, that if we would put our faith in him as our Savior, he forgives our sins and reconciles us to God and pours out all the spiritual blessings of heaven on those of us who are united to him. What a blessing. What a salvation. We pray that you would continue to give us joy in this salvation this morning and in the weeks to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. 
Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.